Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and right now, thousands of people from around the world are gathering in Las Vegas, Nevada, for a very particular event. It's not the latest Chris Angel show. It's not even Donnie and Marie. No, these folks have converged on the Rio All Suite Hotel and Casino for the 2013 44th Annual World Series of Poker. So quite a moment tonight. These two guys have been there for all 400. And the other's fallen by the wayside. But Greg Merson on the left and that man, Jesse Sylvia, now playing hand number 400 of this final table. This is a clip from the final moments of last year's World Series. And as you can hear... And now the river card! The winner? It is a seven! And there it is! Greg Merson is the new main event champion! Was 24-year-old Greg Merson of Laurel, Maryland. Maryland, my Maryland! Greg Merson brings it home! How Merson performs in this year's World Series remains to be seen. But in the meantime, we're taking a little inspiration from his card game to end all card games and bringing you a show we're calling Wild Cards. In other words, we're going off theme for the week and presenting a mishmash of stories about all sorts of people, places and things across the D.C. region. We'll meet the U.S. Army's first black helicopter pilot, We'll preview a new memoir about the arrestingly strange incidents that framed a Washington writer's life. And we'll head to Ocean City, Maryland, where some locals are on edge about an upsurge in crime. But first... I mean, read a little bit of it. We'll take a trip. Um, A trip... Which one should we read? To the distant future. Um, Here's the White House, known as the Oval Triangle Pillar thing, and it says, There's considerable controversy as to its probable function. The exclusive use of smooth, fully pillars has suggested to some that it was used by medium pillar builders to perform the intimate orientation dances used to guide large and small pillar builders back to their beloved oceans when flirting and pillar building were over. All right, so you're probably wondering what in the world is going on here. But the question we really should be asking is, what in the universe... Because we're at the Corcoran Gallery of Art, where artist Ellen Harvey is reading a black-and-white tourist brochure titled The Alien's Guide to the Ruins of Washington, D.C. So on the one side, you have this utterly useless but rather beautiful drawing of D.C. as an archaeological site. And on the other side, you, of course, have the Guide for the Aliens, which are all of the uh, great landmarks of Washington, D.C., like the really big pillar known as... uh, the Washington Monument. The flat pillar thing. Is that the Lincoln Memorial? That's the Lincoln Memorial, yeah. I think that's actually my favorite. I love the flat pillar thing. (laughs) Okay, so Harvey also created the flat pillar thing. Because, you see, this brochure is actually part of her upcoming exhibit, Ellen Harvey, The Alien's Guide to the Ruins of Washington, D.C. The exhibit proposes a scenario that goes something like this. Long after human civilization has ended, aliens land in Washington, where they encounter the rubble of the city's many neoclassical buildings. The aliens then hand-draw these brochures, which Corcoran visitors will collect from a giant souvenir stand, which, incidentally, looks an awful lot like an old D.C. standby. All those incredible hot dog stands with those beautiful hand-painted signs, and then all this crazy amount of signage for hot dogs. And I thought, 
this is amazing. This is a great way to display paintings. And my installer counted, and he, he lost track at about 150 paintings. Indeed, the stands inside and outside walls are lined with large and small paintings of our ruined town. As for why they're paintings, as opposed to the usual mass-produced tchotchkes we usually count as souvenirs? The aliens don't believe in mechanical reproduction, so they basically hand-paint all of their souvenirs, which means that I basically hand-painted all of their souvenirs. But here's the thing. Despite the aliens' meticulous observations about everything they find in Washington... Basically, the aliens get everything wrong. They come to Earth. There's no life and uh, they see all these very solidly built things with all these pillars and they start fantasizing about the lost pillar builders of earth and uh, they think they probably lived in the oceans you know all of these pillars are on big rivers and estuaries so probably they swam up to mate and then would build pillars it was probably a big annual party of some kind the aliens also believe the pillar builders aka humans were divided into three sexes small medium and large and they built three styles of pillars. But instead of the styles we know, Doric, Ionic, and Corinthian, the aliens opt for more straightforward descriptors. Boring, frilly, and very frilly. They say it like it is. They say it like it is. And since you can find these pillars on buildings the world over, the aliens believe that, obviously, the pillar builders were telepathic. As for how the aliens know that classical and neoclassical architecture is a worldwide phenomenon when they've only visited Washington, well... You can find the answer upstairs at the Corcoran. Famously known as the inside-out pillar thing, because all of its pillars are on the inside. Inside a cavernous white room with three walls covered in postcards. 3,000 postcards, something like that? Well, we sort of lost count. It might be more like four. (laughs) I developed quite a sort of eBay habit, and they started coming in a sort of fast and furious way. Harvey calls this room the Pillar Builder Archive. And it's an archive that the aliens found in a time capsule and have been trying to make sense of. The postcards show classical and neoclassical buildings from all over the world, organized by particular architectural features. So, for instance, clustered around a postcard of the Pantheon in Rome, you'll see postcards of other buildings that resemble what the aliens would call a circle-triangle pillar thing. The Adath Israel Temple in Louisville, Kentucky, which looks exactly like the courthouse in Mayville, New York, which looks exactly like the art gallery in Toronto, which looks exactly like the Bolton Market in Karachi. And if you scan the entire archive from left to right, you'll notice a kind of pattern. Starting at the left, you'll see postcards of the Washington Monument, what the aliens call the really big pillar. And then all the obelisks, which then sort of start morphing into these sort of round arenas with obelisks in them, which morph into actual arenas and things like the World War II Memorial, which then morph into round buildings. So you start with obelisks and you end with broken pillars. They think this is how they're all related somehow. And actually, says Harvey, the aliens' methods aren't necessarily that far from our own as we try to interpret our world. The aliens, I mean, everything they believe makes perfect sense. They're just honestly extrapolating from what they see. Yeah, they they don't have much to go on. They basically have a lot of pillars and some postcards, and they're just making it up as they go along, based on their own life experiences, obviously. Harvey also adds that, like the aliens, we've done our share of taking historical treasures like monuments and ruins and sensationalizing, commodifying, even fetishizing them by turning them into souvenirs. Case in point, the three or 4,000 postcards plastered on the walls of the Pillar Builder archive. 
You know, these things, they're all places that were seen as choice destinations. So not only people build all this stuff all over the place, they also traveled all over the place. And when they went to see them, they'd say, look, it's another one of those buildings. I need a postcard to send home to my friends who are living in a city, no doubt, also replete with identical buildings. Okay, so Ellen Harvey's exaggerating just a bit, of course. But when you come to the Corcoran and experience her exhibit, you can't help but wonder if maybe, in a way, these so-called aliens really aren't so alien after all. Ellen Harvey, The Alien's Guide to the Ruins of Washington, D.C., is on display at the Corcoran Gallery of Art from July 3rd through October 6th. You can find more on the exhibit, including a photo of a rocket ship that's considered the very latest in pillar-builder-inspired space travel on our website, metroconnection.org. From the future, we move back in time now to the year 1940. As the nation geared up for war, not everyone who wanted to fight was allowed in. African-Americans made up 10% of the population at the time, but comprised just 1% of the military. And that included only a dozen black officers. Joseph Hairston was part of a generation that would change that. As Jacob Fenston tells us, the longtime Washingtonian would see combat in two wars and become the Army's first black helicopter pilot. Growing up, Joseph Hairston never really experienced segregation. He grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania. We were too poor to go to places, so I couldn't be excluded from restaurants or hotels and never went. But after graduating from high school, he and a white friend went to the local Army recruiter. The recruiter signed up the friend immediately, but told Hairston there was no room. The military was completely segregated. There was a quota of blacks worldwide, and he couldn't find a vacancy. He gave me a list of 30-odd black organizations. I wrote to every one of them. They wrote back, said, sorry, no vacancies. The last unit I wrote to, they wrote back and said, sorry, no vacancies, but we think there's a vacancy at the medical detachment, the only unit not on my list. The medical detachment wrote back and said, we have one vacancy. You can come up for an interview. Now, the key part of that story is that if you tell me I can't do it, then that forces me to try. That's how I got in the Army. What was racism like in World War II? How, how did you experience that? Well, the top general staff were uniform in their position that blacks were not good soldiers, that they wouldn't fight and you couldn't be depended on. In 1942, I was stationed at near Little Rock, Arkansas. The commanding officer called the white and the black officers together on a Sunday, and uh, after his first ranting and raving, he dismissed the white officers and the black officers remaining. His statement was, you people constitute 10% of the population of this nation. I'm going to see that you exercise 10% of the casualties. In other words, he's going to make sure we die. How did African Americans in the armed forces in those years when it was segregated react to this sort of racism that you were describing? It varied. To begin with, the military tried not to concentrate too many blacks in any one place. 
we were put together for the first time at Fort Huachuca, which is on the border in Arizona. At one time, we had about 30 black officers in the guardhouse for being, my words, uppity. In other words, they didn't react properly, well, what was expected of blacks to whites. So the guardhouse was like a, a jail? That's a jail. During World War II, Hairston was commissioned as an officer and fought in Italy. He went on to serve 20 years in the Army. Then later, he got a law degree from Georgetown University and became a senior executive at the IRS. While the military officially desegregated in 1948, many aspects of civilian life were still years behind. In 1963, Hairston was part of the security detail for Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s March on Washington. I am happy to join with you today. During that march, I was on top of the Lincoln Memorial. If the camera had panned up, you would have seen me at the top. That same year, he was looking to buy a house in a white neighborhood in northwest D.C. He had a friend who was in the real estate business call up the listing agent. He didn't have a black accent, so the agent thought he was talking to a white person. And the agent told him, among other things, but she's not going to sell to any Now this is a challenge. To put an offer on the house, he sent the white secretary from his friend's real estate office, so the owner didn't know he was the one trying to buy it. And the owner of the house says, I'm not going to sell this The agent tells her, if you don't sell it, you can never sell it because there's a cloud on the title. So she has to sign. That's how I'm in this house. Over the years, he and the former owner got to know each other, and they eventually became friends. Hairston is now 91 years old, and one lesson those years have taught him, don't try to get even. Getting even is, to me, is ancient. That's, that's not a civilized way to think. You bring yourself down in getting even with the person. And he says there's always a better way, whether you're buying a house, launching a career, or fighting for racial equality. I'm Jacob Fenston. To see photos of Joseph Hairston and other members of the 92nd Infantry who served during World War II, visit our website, metroconnection.org. a break, but when we get back, a brand new kind of diet. One that has nothing whatsoever to do with food. You can just like run to any department store and like pick up an outfit, but to make something, like you really have to want to make it. That and more in just a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today, we're going theme-free and bringing you one of our freewheeling wild cards shows. And uh, speaking of wild, some folks in a certain beach town are worried things are getting too wild of late. And that's the topic of this week's On the Coast. 
in which reporter Brian Russo gets us up to speed on the latest news from the eastern shore of Maryland and coastal Delaware. And Brian joins us now from Ocean City. Hey there, Brian. Hey, Rebecca. How are you? I'm all right. All right. So, um, Brian, you just heard me read that intro. What is up with all of these uh, wild times in Ocean City? Well, the answer to that question is actually a little more complicated than you might think. A lot of people were rattled earlier this month by two separate stabbing incidents, one on the boardwalk and one farther uptown in North Ocean City. In the latter incident, there were three stabbing victims, an 18-year-old woman, a 19-year-old man, and a 20-year-old man. I talked about Ocean City crime with Steve Green. He's the editor and publisher of the Maryland Coast Dispatch. That's a weekly newspaper covering the resort. You know, really what everyone is observing here is that we have a changing clientele this time of year. You know, June is known, early June, late May is known for being June bug season. Um, You know, and some of the arrests are clearly June bug incidents. Oh, June bugs. Uh, We talked about them a couple weeks back on the show, right? Right. Now, we should note that these two stabbings didn't involve senior weekers per se. But police statistics tell us there's a drastic uptick in crime each June in Ocean City, and it's often attributed to the younger demographic that's visiting the resort. Locals, of course, call them June bugs. Um, Are the June bugs really, are they causing more trouble than usual this year? Police officials tell me no, statistically speaking, of course. And this year, certain special events are getting the share of the blame, too because of incidents that have happened during those weekends. So for every due tour in Ocean City Air Show, which seemed to draw in families and be really good for town public relations, you also have an event like the OC Car and Truck Show that came under fire this year for inviting well-known gangster rapper Fat Joe to town. But there's no clear link showing that those events are to blame for the increase in crime. So it seems to be a perception versus reality situation so far in Ocean City. And perhaps that is most eloquently highlighted in rumors of gang presence in Ocean City, Here's Steve Green again. There is documentation that there was some gang-like activity two weekends ago. But unrelated to these stabbings. Yes, unrelated to these stabbings, yes. Um, but it was the concern was that some of these guys, groups, were coming down here to raise hell uh, in our town. Um, and there's social media documentation where we had screenshots sent to us where there was come some sort of um, rivalry was going to be taking place in Ocean City. Mm-hmm. So these are things that don't sit well. That's, that's interesting. Um, but I'm curious, what, what do the police have to say about all this? Well, I talked with Ocean City Police spokesman Mike Levy. He says concerns about gangs are way overblown. We do not have homegrown gangs in Ocean City. There is no organized gang-type activity here. And if there was, we would be combating it with every resource available to us to, to send the message. And I think we continue to, to be very vigilant about that. He also says increases in crime are totally normal especially when you have a huge spike in population like we do every summer in Ocean City. We are not any worse this year than we were previous years. Um, In fact, if you want to look at some raw data, we're actually a little bit better. And I'm thinking that uh, that little bit better is the takeaway that tourism officials in Ocean City would really like to emphasize right about now. Well, yeah, that's an absolute understatement. For people who live on the coast year-round, though, this time of year, when they make the money that gets them through the winter months. So no one wants any messages floating around that could dissuade people from coming to the beach. Well, have we seen any evidence that that is actually happening, you know, that tourists are opting to go elsewhere? Anecdotally, no. I went down to the boardwalk to ask business owners what they're seeing. I talked to a man named Dan Troiano. He owns a boardwalk boutique called Dimensions. He says the only thing that really keeps the crowds away is bad weather. And he thinks the recent increase in crime is just a blip on the radar screen. You know, it gets, it, every season starts out a little worse, and I get a little worried, but they all go away. 
as soon as the rates go up and it's more family time, it disappears and it turns into a nice town. Well, Brian, I guess we'll just have to wait and see how the summer unfolds. But um, in the meantime, thank you so much for keeping us up to date on what's happening out there in Ocean City. You're welcome, Rebecca. My pleasure. Brian Russo is the coastal reporter for WAMU and the host of Coastal Connection on 88.3 in Ocean City, Maryland. And we're curious, if you're a fan of our local beaches, what factors do you consider when choosing your vacation spot? Let us know all about it. Our email address is metro at wamu.org. And you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. And now it's time for DC Dives, our monthly tour of the local dive bar scene. What is a dive bar? It's a glorious dump. It's got to have an interesting staff and an interesting crowd. It's got to be dark. It's got to be old. Typically, it's got to be cheap. Today, Jared Walker takes us inside Millie and Al's, a Northwest DC establishment that's celebrating its 50th anniversary. It's a Thursday night, and I'm at Millie and Al's on 18th Street Northwest in the heart of Adams Morgan. I meet owner Barbara Shapiro, whose father Al founded the business back in 1963 in what was then called Balance's Colombian Restaurant. My dad was a regular. It was his favorite hangout, and he learned of it being for sale and quickly grabbed it. Al Shapiro was dating a woman named Millie at the time, so he did what any self-respecting star-crossed lover would do and named his new business Millie and Al's. At the time, 18th Street was home to a vibrant commercial district that included the very first Toys R Us in America and the famous jazz club, the Showboat Lounge. But the area quickly changed in the turbulence of the late 1960s and 70s. He made it through the riots and some pretty, pretty tough times. It was called Little Harlem and uh, Little Havana for a while. I mean, it was rough gang street. And I remember coming to see my dad, and I was pretty young, and, and it was rough. I mean, he'd walk me out to the car with a weapon. or You just didn't want to be out in the street by yourself. How he survived the really rough times, I'm not sure. But he did survive. And so did Millie and Al's. In the process, it became a fixture of the neighborhood with a loyal clientele. Along the way, the Shapiros developed a simple and successful business identity. It hasn't changed much. I think if you saw it 50 years ago, you'd recognize it driving by as being the same place. If it's not broke, we don't fix it. Ted Lowell has been a bartender at Millie and Al's for 13 years. It's basically a four-star dive. I mean, it hasn't really changed. I mean, everything pretty much stays the same. It doesn't, it's like stuck in time. Bar regular Matt Roberts says that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it's very grounding. I think for community or for neighborhood, sub-neighborhood to continue to be appealing and to succeed just overall, it's good to have businesses or people who have been here around for a while and aren't just going to be subject to fleeting change of interest. But there is one aspect of the bar that's constantly changing. The walls are lined with a growing collection of artifacts, art, and knickknacks that would make a TGI Fridays blush. It's kind of fun. It's actually an afterthought. It's like I don't think that they planned out the the 50 years they were going to be here. They just sort of, 
well, that looks good. We'll throw that up on the ceiling. We'll throw that up at the ceiling, you know. And now they have a complete melange of stuff. What's your favorite piece of art? I like that skeleton that makes uh, noises and lights up light bulbs when you're having your shots. So wait, what does it do? That skeleton over there, when they're doing shots, that light bulb will like flash off and on. And that, I don't do shots. I just think it's really amusing that it has that. You're just a fan of his work. I'm a fan of his work. That's a good way to put it, yes. <laughs> just then, I run into one of the bar's security and doormen, Joshua Duckett. I ask him what's the best part about working at Million Owls. I like getting fake IDs. I love that, man. Why is that? <laughs> because you let them come up, you know, you get the card, you look at it, you know it's fake. And, and you sit there and be like, really? You, you really think you're going to get this back? <laughs> What's the worst fake ID you've ever seen? Oh, North Carolina. It was terrible. Everything was off on it. It didn't have the right anything on it. It was just the fonts was off. The picture was in the wrong spot. And it was just, it was terrible. Whoever did it, I didn't tell them, I said, you need to get your money back. (laughs) Duckett's reaction epitomizes the bar's good-natured but no-nonsense attitude that keeps folks like Matt Roberts coming back again and again. I think, for one, it's unpretentious, and I think this place draws out the honest answer. It it doesn't try to put on airs. At Million Owls, everyone's a king, as long as they're legal. I'm Jared Walker. You can find photos from Million Owls on our website, metroconnection.org. And if you have a favorite dive bar you think we should visit, send an email to metro at wamu.org. We turn now from drinking to sewing two activities I don't necessarily recommend you try doing at the same time. But anyway, Lauren Talley grew up sewing. She made sleeping bags for her beanie babies. She even designed her own prom dress. But now Talley says she's alarmed at the poor quality and high prices of so much fashion out there. So she's decided to go on a diet, a clothing diet, meaning no buying clothing for a full year. Emily Berman checked in with Tally six months into her challenge. The thing about making a New Year's resolution, especially a big one like this, is that it can be tempting to fall off the wagon. For Lauren Tally, that moment of near collapse came just a few weeks ago. My jeans ripped and I can't buy new jeans. And it's okay for now, she says, because it's warm out. But thinking ahead to fall, she started to worry. It's possible to repair them, but it's, it's going to look kind of weird because you're going to have the patches. She called her mom in Ann Arbor, Michigan, to ask if she'd buy the new pair as a present. And she said no. She said that that would be going against the whole idea of what I was doing. Tally has since recovered from that moment of weakness. And other than bras, underwear, and shoes, if she wants something, she has to make it herself. So this dress... I tried it on and it was too big, so I'm taking in the sides. The dress is knee-length with a floral pattern and pink shoulder straps. Tally started it a while ago, but now that it's summer and she could use more lightweight clothes, the time has come to finish it. A year ago, she could have just gone out and bought something new. 
I calculated how much I spent in the last year at clothing stores, it was over $2,000. I was shocked, and then I was kind of embarrassed that I had spent that much. And it was on a shopping excursion in New York late last fall that this all started to come into focus. I went to Bergdorf Goodman in New York for the first time, and I had never been there before. And so it was like a museum of really expensive clothes that you could touch. She walked around the store, examining the way skirts were lined and the blouses were stitched. She held up a beautiful dress and looked at the price tag, $500. Her heart sank. To see that it was cotton, but it was also made in China, it was like, why? Well, I just don't understand why you'd be spending that much money on something that is the same quality as something that you could buy for much cheaper. So she decided to take a time out. I can't change that our clothes were made in China. I can choose not to participate in buying them. Tally rifles through her closet looking for the very last item of clothing she purchased. This sparkly top is from J. Crew, and it's sequins with polka dots. It was a steal, she says, and certainly not something she'd be able to make herself. But since January, her sewing's really improved. Take this turquoise party dress she made. This I wore to my cousin's wedding, and I finished it the morning that I left. It was really down to the wire, but I put in bust darts and this little puckering. I've never made sleeves before. The way she sees it, making your own clothes is a lot like making your own food. You know, you could easily just like go to the, a restaurant or a fast food restaurant and grab your dinner or something. It's another thing to go to like a farmer's market or to the farm in the same way that, you know, you can just like run to H&M or any department store and like pick up an outfit. But to make something, like you really have to want to make it. We return to the sewing table where Tally finishes taking in her dress. Okay, now I'm going to go try it on. She runs into the bathroom to change. And when she emerges, there's a big smile on her face. I probably actually could wear this to work, even though it's, you know, more casual. I could wear it like on a Friday. Or I'd wear it on a date or maybe anywhere. It's kind of fun, she says, knowing that this is the only dress like this in the world. She's more conscious of what she's buying, where it comes from, and how it's made, which, like this dress, suits her just right. I'm Emily Berman. To see pictures of some of Lauren Talley's creations, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Up next, why the National Mall once symbolized the Great Depression. Some poor guy who'd lost his job with a bank or as a clerk shows up with his three-piece suit and goes and cuts wood so he can get enough money to buy dinner for his family. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're sidestepping our usual thematic approach and bringing you one of our wild cards shows. In just a bit, we'll hear from another local author in our monthly series, Bookend, and NPR special correspondent Susan Stamberg will take us to the National Gallery of Art as we revisit a time when art danced with music. But first, we'll revisit another time at the National Gallery, or rather, where the National Gallery stands today. It's one of those little pieces of history that are lost. And the reason I love it so much as a piece of Washingtoniana 
is it reminds us, when we take a look at something like this, that Washington was, was just as severely struck by the Depression as any other place in America. This is historian Paul Dixon. He's co-author of the series On This Spot, pinpointing the past in Washington, D.C. And the spot we're checking out today is on the north side of the National Mall, right in front of the National Gallery's West Building. But as Dixon points out, in the 1930s, before John Russell Pope built his majestic neoclassical structure, the site featured a little piece of lost history known as the Woodyard, or Woodlot. And most of this country loved the image of the guy on the corner or the woman on the corner selling apples for a nickel. And in Washington, the big image of the Depression were people coming down and sawing wood. But a wacky thing about the woodlot, Dixon says, is you have all these sweaty guys hacking and sawing away, and then right next to them, there's this set of grand marble steps leading, well, leading to uh, nowhere. This spectacular piece of land had been earlier earmarked for a great, huge monument to the military career of George Washington and the veterans of World War I. And in 1921, President Harding dedicated this magnificent memorial. What did it look like? It was going to be a big, huge, Greek-style, limestone, crusted, and it was going to have epic proportions. And they put in the foundation, and they built a series of marble stairways leading up to it. So it was, it was all there, ready to go. And they just ran out of money. Along comes the, the Great Depression, and Washington is suffering just like the rest of the country. And somebody gets the idea that they will clear what's ever on this land, put a few little shacks on it, and start bringing in big piles of wood. As trees come down and people, they take down trees and other pieces of wood that are, that are brought in. And anybody who needed some money, mostly male could come in and saw wood. And what the irony would be, would be some poor guy who'd lost his job with a bank or as a clerk in some white-collar job, shows up with his three-piece suit and hangs his suit jacket on a, on a hook and goes and cuts wood so he can get you know enough money to buy dinner for his family. And I, to me, it was interesting because it, it is one of the most visible things that was here. And it was here for a long time. If you look on old maps, say from 34, 35, There'll be this big square right here, and it'll say the woodlot. And when did they take the woodlot away? As soon as they, they took it away, as soon as the, the approval was made to build the National Gallery of Art. So that was the end of the woodlot. And that started in 1938, and it was opened in 1941. And again, it was symbolic, because here we are at the depths of the Depression, and all of a sudden they're going to build this phenomenal monument to creativity, to art, to the higher spirit of humanity. And so it becomes sort of first a surcease for the poor and the and the downtrodden, and then it becomes sort of an, a, an element of elevation. And before it was the woodlot, isn't this spot famous for being where uh, President James Garfield was shot? It, it, before that, this had been the, there were railroad yards all th- during the Civil War that crisscrossed the mall, right across from his Armory Square Hospital. There were hospitals down here. The railroad trains were bringing in the people from the battlefields. They were coming in uh, by boat and being taken north. Some of them are kept here. So it was crisscrossed with railroad tracks, and the old Baltimore and Potomac Railroad Station was right here on this same area that the National Gallery of Art is now located, the west wing of of the National Gallery. And what happened was, uh, in July of 1881, President Garfield, he was on his way going back to Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts for his 25th uh, reunion, and he stepped into the station and was shot by a disgruntled office seeker named Guiteau, uh, shot twice, and died some months later. And uh, there is a 
always been a little marker here that the tourists sort of ignore that this is where uh, one of our presidents uh, was, was, was shot. And yet, once upon a time, this was the woodlot. Yeah, this was the woodlot, yep. I can hear the saws now. They're <laughs> grinding away like bees in a hive. Paul Dixon is the author of many, many books on Washington history, including The Bonus Army, an American Epic, and Words from the White House, words and phrases coined or popularized by America's presidents. He's also co-author of the series On This Spot, pinpointing the past in Washington, D.C. Now, of course, if you wanted to visit the woodlot today, you'd need a very fancy time machine. But to see what's happening at the National Gallery of Art right now, we turn to someone equally fancy, NPR's Susan Stamberg, a regular contributor to the show. She recently visited a new exhibition at the National Gallery, one that highlights the huge and initially scandalous impact a group of dancers, composers, artists, and choreographers made on classical dance at the start of the 20th century. The exhibit is called Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe. Silver and red sketches for costumes, gold and pearl-encrusted princely robes, a flat curtain conceived by Picasso. The Russian Dance Company appears in all its glory in this exhibition. Plus, there's music and films of various ballets. This film clip shows the most famous and controversial ballet russe dance, the Rite of Spring. Now the young men and women are coupled up and they're stamping on the ground. It's almost like a prehistoric version of a river dance. Curator Sarah Kennel says it was scandalous in its day, 1913, so 100 years old this year. Choreography by Vaslav Nijinsky, music by Igor Stravinsky. The Rite of Spring was something completely different. Uh, rhythmically so complex, tonally so difficult. And then on top of that, Nijinsky's choreography was just baffling to audiences. Here was Nijinsky, one of the greatest dancers in the world, and he was forcing his dancers to stamp, to turn in, to jump up and down. Their movement was so difficult and strange. It was the antithesis of everything that ballet had ever been. No tutus, no gracefully lifted legs, no lighter-than-air leaps? Sacre bleu! There was a riot on opening night. Um, Some people felt that they had been insulted, that they came to see the ballet, and what they got was mud pie thrown in the face. No surprise the original was performed just nine times in Paris, but the buzz delighted the person who was responsible for the entire shocking production— He was an impresario, a producer. What would you call Sergei Diaghilev? We might want to call him a cultural entrepreneur. He was also an opportunist. He had a great nose for talent. He was very well cultured himself. He had extensive training as a musician, but his teacher essentially told him he didn't have enough talent. So, in love with the arts... Diaghilev presented Russian artists in concerts and operas in Paris, with funding from the Tsar, for a while anyway. The step from opera to ballet happened when suddenly that money was yanked away. And ballet, of course, was much less expensive than opera to produce. 
fine, do ballet. But Diaghilev wanted to get beyond the imperial court dance traditions, the classical tutus and such. He had seen Isadora Duncan dance in St. Petersburg. Duncan was an American. Her movements were natural, loose, modern. And that freedom of movement, the idea that movement comes from within the body and it's expressed through the entire body, not just hands and feet, was very influential. Diaghilev knew some Russian choreographers and dancers were also eager for something new. In 1909, he cabled a theater manager in France with his pitch. I'm bringing over the best ballet company in the world, lots of evenings, uh, three performances a night, get ready. By 1911, the company was based in Paris and touring the world. The National Gallery Ballet Russe show is subtitled When Art Danced with Music because the most avant-garde artists designed the sets and costumes. Picasso created cubist jackets, Matisse, a tinseled yellow satin robe, Chanel, she did little wool bathing suits for one dance and was a patron. The Ballet Russe became the thing to see, and the real magnet, the one who kept the seats full, was a dancer and choreographer named Václav Nijinsky. Where to begin? Well, he was gorgeous, blazing dark eyes, fabulous cheekbones, and that body, a major star. Nijinsky was an incredible talent. He was technically very well trained. He was incredibly strong. He could jump in the air, seemingly able to stay there. The story is that somebody asked him once, how do you jump so high? And he said, it's simple. You just jump up there and wait a little while. Nijinsky was worshipped by men. It was a moment when gay culture became visible in Paris and by women who got the chance to really look at men and be seduced by what they saw. Slithering sensuously, having his way with a scarf to Debussy's Afternoon of a Fawn, Nijinsky's choreography scandalized Parisians who thought the movements were just wrong. Some people said, well, he's Russian. He just can't understand our French music. Nijinsky spoke with his body and, as dancer and choreographer, created a universal language. Curator Sarah Kennel says Nijinsky and company represented one of the great turning points, not just in ballet, but in modern culture. The Ballet Russe transformed the future of ballet in the West and really in the world by bringing dancers with great traditional training to look at modern forms of movement great music, and bringing music and design and dance together into a cohesive whole. Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe, 1909-1929, when art danced with music. At the National Gallery in Washington through early September, D.C. is its only U.S. venue. Lavish, colorful, seductive, shocking. It's a show that quickens the imagination, not to mention the blood. That was NPR's Susan Stamberg. Diaghilev and the Ballet Russe is at the National Gallery of Art through September 2nd. You can find images from the exhibit on our website, metroconnection.org. Before we say goodbye today, let's get a little literary with our monthly segment, Bookend. Bookend. 
today we meet local author Howard Norman. He teaches creative writing at the University of Maryland and is best known for novels that examine how love and violence play out against the stark backdrop of Canada's maritime provinces. But in his new memoir, Norman looks at how strange and sometimes violent events have shaped his own life. That includes a murder-suicide committed in his Chevy Chase home by a poet who killed herself and her two-year-old son while house-sitting one summer. Jonathan Wilson caught up with Norman to talk about how living and working in the nation's capital has influenced his writing. Anyone who's read your writing knows that you often focus on places that are known for natural beauty, even a kind of solitude. And yet you end up settling in Washington, D.C., definitely a place not known for that, though there are you know ways to find that here. So what has it been like for you to be here and, and to stay here? Well, it's a compelling question because it speaks to a kind of paradox. I've never written anything in Washington. That, that's not to disparage the place. It's just to underscore the fact that daily life can be distracting, teaching and friends and working in schools and so on and so forth. All these books have been written in Vermont. Uh, a couple were completed out at Point Reyes, where I go every year in California, maybe one in, in Halifax. But essentially, it's a matter of the displacement of the imagination. I, I travel to uh, Maritimes of Canada. We live, you eavesdrop, you absorb the atmosphere, the history, research in archives obsessively, and then go back to Vermont and displace the imagination by writing about Nova Scotia. That displacement of the imagination does not work for me here. And uh, rather than just brood about that, I've just sort of embraced it. I wonder how you feel that uh, both teaching and living in the nation's capital has affected your writing, even if you're not necessarily writing while you're here in D.C. Do you think that doing that for, you know, I guess going on 25 years now has affected and changed your writing over the years? Here in Washington, I live a very prescribed life. I go to politics and prose. I go to arugula to see what new pasta sauce there is. Otherwise, I'm home. So I've learned to adjust to living in Washington. One thing I do feel very strongly is that Washington, like most American cities, is a place of murder. Just statistically, you are surrounded by homicides. You are surrounded by violence. In my novels, I tend to isolate an individual act of violence framed by a landscape, perhaps deceptively pastoral landscape. And so one is allowed then to focus in on the actual repercussions of an individual murder rather than a murder that's stuck on page 18 of the Washington Post. Urban violence is something I can't write about. I don't know how to write about it. I actually have no interest in writing about it. But I'm acutely aware of it when I'm writing about that, that circumstance in other places. Many people know the story of Ritika Vazirani. That murder-suicide that was kind of, as you say, visited upon you, did it strike you as an echo of stuff that you already write about? Is it something that still really affects your life, and will it change your writing in the future? Has it changed your writing? The memoir is less about particular incidents than it is about sort of arguing against the idea of a convenient notion of closure. And uh, I, I don't believe in it. I think that things that will stay after you, you love somebody, they're no longer in your life, doesn't mean 
that you've shut them out. A violent incident happens. It may keep reinstating itself in some ways that are unpredictable. I am certainly against willfully and self-indulgently holding on to pain, but it seems to me that certain incidents in one's life have a kind of inventiveness or perseverance and keep coming back around in various forms or another, and the idea is to kind of maybe transmute those into, into writing. That event, much of it was dealt with in the last essay of this book. In some ways, I still think about it, but far more glancingly now, time, big cliche, uh, does diffuse the memories of certain things. But I would say that applies to every single thing in this book, not just that incident. was author Howard Norman speaking with Jonathan Wilson. Norman teaches creative writing at the University of Maryland College Park. His new memoir, titled I Hate to Leave This Beautiful Place, will be in bookstores July 9th. You can hear Norman reading an excerpt on our website, metroconnection.org. that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Jonathan Wilson, Emily Berman, Brian Russo, and Jared Walker, along with NPR's Susan Stamberg. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our interns are Eva Harder and Kayla Peoples. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We'll be away next week for the July 4th holiday, but we're back July 12th with a brand new show about inspiration. We'll meet some D.C. kids being inspired by baseball for the very first time. We'll check out a new play inspired by gender transformation in the nation's capital. And we'll meet a musician who's writing songs inspired by each and every station on Metro. The Wheaton Escalator ride takes 2 minutes and 45 seconds. So if you start the song at the top of the escalator, it will end at the very bottom of the escalator. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.